We will be reading uh, Psalm 122 in its entirety. A Song of Ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Church, I might ask if you would this morning to join me as we begin our time in God's word. Father in heaven, we praise your holy name today. We thank you for allowing us to enter into your gates this morning. And what a joy it is to gather together with your people, singing praises, studying your word, remembering your great gift of salvation, praying for the saints. We have come, as it's already been spoken this morning, we have come to worship you. Father, remind us each time we gather together that you are the reason that we journey into this building each Sunday. Refresh us this morning as we look to your word. Stir within us a love and longing for the Lord's house, the Lord's people, and the Lord's purposes. Father, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. At the beginning of Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Pilgrim, named Christian, he's at home, but he's greatly agitated, isn't he? He's stirred. Having read the book, he's convinced that there's something more to live for than what's here on this earth. And he encounters this man at the beginning of the story, you might remember, Evangelist. And Evangelist points Christian to the light of the yonder wicked gate whereby he'll begin his pilgrimage to the celestial city. And you know, reading Bunyan's allegory, it awakens in you so many of the details of Scripture. But it also brings to the forefront the life of a Christian. And it shines a particular light, not just on this young man named Christian, but upon all who profess Christ as Lord. What you see is a vivid picture of a pilgrim, on a journey. The ups and the downs, the mountaintop experiences and the trials, the rejoicing and the times of sorrow. He begins with two feet planted in the city of destruction. And having had an encounter at the cross where the burden of his heart literally rolled away, remember that? He begins his journey to the celestial city. 
And the remainder of his life then becomes a pilgrimage of sorts, a journey to seek the Lord, purposing in his heart to live as the Lord would have him live, looking forward to his reward yet to come. You know, as churches, I opened to Psalm 122. I'm reminded of a pilgrimage as well. Bunyan's Christian is not the only one who's experienced a pilgrimage to the celestial city or the holy city. God has given to us here in his word a glimpse of what it was like for his people to approach the holy city of the day. In fact, Psalm 122 sits in the midst of Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, all 15 of those psalms. It's a collection of psalms, oftentimes referred to as the songs of ascents. Ascent, the opposite of descent. Ascent, because when you went to Jerusalem, you went up. You went to Jerusalem. These were songs that were typically sung on their journey. During the days of David and Solomon, the people of God thrived in, in many ways. And the kingdom at this time was still united. And it would remain united until the days of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And we see that David, in his life, his life spans some 70 years. From approximately 1040 B.C. on the timeline to about 970. Somewhere in that frame. And he reigned for 40 years. The last 33 of which were in the city of David. The former home of the Jebusites, what we know now today as Jerusalem, city of peace. How did this pilgrimage idea come about, though? What biblical basis is there for the people of God to make such a journey? If you would, turn in your Bible. There are, there are three. I'm just going to really emphasize one. I'll point out the other two in Exodus 23. Verses 14 through 19. And then again in Exodus 34, verses 23 and 24. I found an interesting thing in, in the Exodus 34 account. You know, they were, they were required to make this journey three times in a year for the feasts. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. But one of the things that always was interesting to me to consider, you know, these were, for many of the people, long journeys. And they're leaving their homes and families are going together. Not just the males were attending. It was oftentimes the whole families would go. And so you wonder, who's taking care of the home? What's, what's, what about the land? Well, in the uh, account in Exodus 34, it's pretty interesting because he says, Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. He says, I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. Isn't that great? That, that there was this, uh, we were talking about this yesterday. One of the, I think one of the children, somebody said that the God, this is like a built-in security system. You know, the, the people would travel and they didn't have to worry about this stuff. God said, nobody's going to covet your land while you're gone. He's going to take care of their land. So they're making this journey three times. Keep looking in Deut- Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy 16. This is where I want to I read for just a moment. I mean, again, looking at the biblical basis. Why are they making this pilgrimage? Why are they going to the holy city? Deuteronomy chapter 16. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 16, starting at the beginning of the chapter, 
we see there, and, and really this spans from verses 1 through 17. But verse 2, we see talking about the Passover. You shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord, your God, from the flock and the herd, in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. That's, that's a key phrase. In the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. Look at verses 5 and 6. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover. See, there's a certain place they were to do this, the place where God's name was going to abide. Verse 7, you shall roast and eat it in the place where the Lord your God chooses. Skipping down, talking about the Feast of the Weeks. In verse 11, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your gate. Everyone is to be rejoicing. This is a time of rejoicing. And he says, at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Verse 11. And you keep reading. You keep going on down to the third feast here, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 14. You shall rejoice in your feast. Your son, your daughter, same, everybody who are within your gates. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord in the place which the Lord chooses. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you surely rejoice. 16. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given to you. Some, some very helpful um, background and understanding so that we can see why they were making this journey. Why, why, did, they, why did they go uh, three times a year to the holy city? What was the purpose? We see that it's on the basis of what the Lord said. It's, it's out of obedience to God's word that the people made the journey each year to worship the Lord, to give thanks to his name, to show gratitude to God for the blessings of harvest, to hear the word of the Lord, to remember the wonderful works of God in the lives of the people. Okay, that's why they were making this journey. So pilgrims traveling together to the house of the Lord, they were on a journey together to worship the king. Now, the journey might look differently for you as a Christian today. But you are on a journey. Every single one of us are on a journey. You're traveling these last days as a pilgrim and a sojourner. And I believe it's in that context that Peter writes these words in his first epistle. He says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak evil against you, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. That's First Peter chapter two, eleven and twelve. The pilgrimage to Jerusalem is still practiced by some today, Jews, Christians, and Muslims. In fact, all make their journeys for various spiritual reasons to Jerusalem. There's this rich spiritual heritage of, of Judaism and Christianity and Islam. They convert in the holy city. And many are drawn back to pray. Some are drawn back to see firsthand the places where Jesus himself walked. Some are 
going back to worship this God who, according to their beliefs, still chooses to reside exclusively in a specific location. Perhaps it causes one to ask the question, why is it that the Christian today need not rely upon a pilgrimage to the holy city? It's a good question to ask. I believe, church, that the God we serve has chosen to reveal himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 1, verse 18, the Bible says that Jesus, in coming down to earth, declared the Father. He was in the flesh, the fullness of God, Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 tells us. And when Jesus ascended to be back with the Father, a few days later, the promised Holy Spirit arrived on the scene of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So unlike the Israelites, we do not have to travel to a certain location to worship the Lord our God. If we are in Christ, Romans 6 talks about what that means. If we are in Christ, we have the Spirit of Christ in us who points us to Christ. John 14, 26, that's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. He points us to Christ and he reveals the deep things of God to us. Corinthians chapter 2, 10 and 11. See, the Christian has the Spirit of Christ in him now and God revealed himself it's important for us to see the history of how God has revealed himself to his people remember early on he was revealing himself in the garden and it was conversation that was happening he was talking to the people a little bit later we see the tabernacle days God revealing himself in the tent of the meeting and we keep going forward God revealing himself to man we get to the days of Christ and and he sends his son down here to earth Jesus lives his life. He dies on the cross. He's raised. He ascends to be back with the Father. And now God has revealed himself through the promised Holy Spirit, revealing, coming even closer, abiding in us, in those who believe on Jesus. Psalm 122, it takes you back to the pilgrimage of God's people. Three times a year, they made the journey to the holy city. At the time of writing, the Israelites were at what many would consider the peak of favor and blessing with God during the days of a united kingdom under David and Solomon. And so with all of that as as some context, let's look at Psalm 122, keeping in mind how this psalm connects to the life of the church today. How does it connect to the church? Well, we see in verses 1 and 2. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. We see here right in the front, the first two verses, there's an anticipation of the journey. These pilgrims were anticipating the journey that they were making. We think about this journey that they made and Maybe a question for us to ask is how does this particular Psalm 122 journey, how does it contribute to your own journey in Christ? David says that he was glad when others said to him, let us go into the house of the Lord. He rejoiced, another translation. Another translator said that David was thrilled when others said to him, let's go into the house of the Lord. You see, these pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem, They anticipated the journey. They looked forward to the journey. 
Preparations, no doubt, were made for such a lengthy journey from home, but they anticipated the journey with great joy. Gladness filled their hearts as they considered the journey to Jerusalem. And as I read, there seems to be a particular mindset about the pilgrimage. This rejoicing permeated their whole being at the thought of the journey. Church, you made it here this morning. Praise the Lord. But in light of the text, I believe it's good to ask, are you glad to be here today? Are you glad to be here today? Does rejoicing characterize your thoughts as you considered coming into the Lord's house this morning? Children, when your parents speak of going into the Lord's house on Sunday, how does that settle in your spirit? Do you have a spirit of gladness about making the journey to the Lord's house? What characterizes your gladness if it is present? Are you glad simply to be around friends? That, no doubt, is a perk of being here in the gathering. It's a perk. It's a wonderful thing. But is your gladness found in the Lord and in your desire to worship him with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength? See, the pilgrims in Psalm 122, they anticipated the journey with gladness. I was glad, David says, when they said to me, they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. There was a longing for that. But they also anticipated the journey with each other. Can you imagine for a moment this large caravan? I mean, 50, hundreds of people, I don't know, maybe thousands perhaps. Who knows? I don't know exactly how large these were, but they were very large caravans that were traveling. And when we understand this picture, we, we come to understand a little bit more. We're a little bit more sympathetic with the parents, the earthly parents of Jesus. Because you remember in Luke chapter 2, they lost their son. Do you remember that? They lost him. And I think for many of us, we go, well, how could you as a parent lose your son? Well, this text gives us a little bit of context as to how that might have happened. Because they were traveling on the feast day. Large numbers of people, families and friends... And I'm sure they thought their son, their 12-year-old, was hanging out with someone else in the caravan. These large groups of people would travel together and they would go and make the journey to the holy city to worship the Lord. You know, there's something to be said here, church, about making the journey together. You know, when we choose to inform the children, and oftentimes it's a strategic choosing to inform the children. Some of you parents probably know exactly what we're talking about on this. There are times when it's just not appropriate to let children in on certain things you're going to be doing. And there are moments when you just you let them know in the right time. When you choose to let them in on some things of where we're going, some place that's special, there's a certain level of excitement attached to that. And so when we tell them who else is coming along, Who else is going to be there? The anticipation ramps up a bit. Why? Because there's something special about making the trip with loved ones, with friends. As a pilgrim here on this earth, 
Is there rejoicing that takes place? Knowing that your brothers and sisters in the Lord are going to be here? I hope this text also reinforces the need for you to be present in the Lord's house. There's something about the gathering of the saints and the priorities given to coming together on the Lord's day to worship the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the song we sang. I love that chorus. That's one of those choruses that will just stick with me the rest of the day. Blessed be the name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We gather together with our brothers and sisters. And so I think would want you to know that when you are not here, you are missed. You're missed when you're not here. Pilgrims anticipate the journey to the house of the Lord with each other. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're reminded of this. Hebrew writer says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We are here but for a time, and we're gone. As we gather together, one of the things that we ought to be doing is stirring up one another to love and good works, exhorting one another, and even so, the more as the day approaches. The text also here points out, it says, let us go into the house of the Lord. It's the intended destination of the pilgrims. Let's go into the house of the Lord. They're anticipating the journey with gladness. They anticipate it with each other. But they also anticipate the arrival of stepping foot in the Lord's house. Standing within the gates of Jerusalem. Our feet have been standing within the gates of Jerusalem. There's something about, when I read this text, there's something about being in the Lord's house. Now, there's nothing magical about this particular building that we're in here this morning. In fact, when you look around and you see the balloons, you know, on the water tower, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's not the preference. And, you know, the fold-up chairs probably aren't the most comfortable. Amen? Probably aren't the most comfortable. But I believe the text is, is reinforcing, it's talking about something here very important for us to understand. That when we gather together, this place that we gather in, this place may change over time as it has in the life of hope in Christ. But stepping foot inside the house of the Lord should bring about an eager anticipation. See, one of the joys of being connected in the body of Christ is the time spent with brothers and sisters in the house of the Lord. That time together in his house is sweet. And I have many memories growing up in the church. Saints who, who, who committed to being in the Lord's house week after week after week. They were there. Always enjoyed my conversations, especially with some of the, the older saints in the body. Enjoyed hearing their stories. Enjoyed seeing the love that they had for the Lord in his house. These memories of worshiping the Lord together in the house of the Lord. Hearing the word of the Lord together. There's something to be said about hearing the word of the Lord together. 
in his house, the memories, the conversations, the life shared together in his house. And I would ask, is there a similar anticipation in this place? Let us go into the house of the Lord. Let's go. Verse 2, if you notice, cuts right to the time of arrival. Verse 1 is kind of the anticipation itself. But verse 2, you get the idea that they're there. Our feet have been standing within your gates. And, you know, studying this psalm has, has breathed some, some new life into my, my own love for, for God, my love for, for you all, his people, love for his house. And from all I can tell, Jerusalem would have been quite a scene as the pilgrims made their way up. You see the travelers made their way up. And can you imagine these large groups of people making their way to the holy city and, you know, maybe just seeing, starting to see it and the excitement building as they approach the city. Something marvelous about seeing it, I'm sure, from the distance. And, you know, you were on the journey, and you were part of something bigger than yourself. And the, the, all these people, and the feasts, and the time of worship, and there was something special, it seems, taking place, setting your feet within the gates of Jerusalem. For these pilgrims of Psalm 122... The very presence of the Lord awaited them. See, this was the location where God met with his people and where the people came together to give back to God for his many blessings. You remember the passage in Deuteronomy I read, they were not to come empty-handed. They were to come with sacrifices, with offerings. They were to come ready to worship the Lord. There was this eager anticipation filled their hearts as they drew near to the city. And you know, I was thinking about that eager anticipation. And I know in our family, I know for the last several years, there's been a, um, a journey of sorts made to um, a university up north, about 40 minutes from our house. And it's an opportunity that, that some of the boys, we have an opportunity to, to kind of just be together for a week at a camp. And this journey together is always much anticipated. And it seems like the journey, the anticipation for the journey begins months in advance, especially by our youngest son. There's lots of conversation, there's packing, there's the car ride, the talking about it. Even getting off the exit, there's the, there's the Burger King that's off the exit. And that's the Burger King we always have a sandwich at before we go. We get there and we arrive on the campus and the memories come back and seeing all the cars and all the young people and everything just comes, this, this whole anticipation. And I realize that the personal example falls woefully short in comparison to the journey that's being described in 122. But the anticipation of the journey is what I'd like for you to see. And I believe that you too have fond memories of an annual trip or a family gathering in a certain destination. And you can resonate with the psalmist when he declares, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. There's something about being inside the holy city for the ones talked about here in Psalm 122. And you get the idea that the psalmist sees it as a privilege to be there. Well, these pilgrims not only 
anticipate the journey ahead of them. But according to the text, if we look at 3, 4, and 5, they go for the purpose of giving thanks. That's why they go. They're going to give thanks. Pilgrims give thanks in the journey. Not only do they anticipate the journey, they give thanks in the journey. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact or it's bound firmly together. Where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. Now, some see in these lines here in verses 3 in the first part of 4, the, the smallness of the city. Jerusalem was not a big city. While others reference the many buildings that were closely knit, compacted together, closely built to one another. Still others see in this line a reference to the unity that was found in the city. And I believe there's probably a weaving of all three, truly. Because think about it. If these buildings were all closely built together, and you see pictures of them, and you see they're just like like crammed in this little area. But if you were going to live in that area, and you were going to be living in one of those houses right next to another house, next to another house, next to another house, you had better come to understand some things about unity. It's sort of like living in some of those subdivisions today that are just, there's no room between them. And, and after a while, you know, if the idea of unity is not attractive to you, if you don't like the idea of having to get along with a neighbor that's right next door to you, living in Jerusalem, living in the Holy City probably wouldn't have been a good place for you because you were literally right next to somebody. Okay, so the idea here that's being expressed, Jerusalem, it's a compact, it's, it's closely built together. There was this sense in Jerusalem of unity. And especially at the time we're talking about, during the days of David, during the days of Solomon. I believe this unity comes into light a little bit more as you keep reading into verse 4. It says where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. Now, the pilgrims... On the journey to Jerusalem. I want you to notice as the text says. They came from the tribes of the Lord. Of the Lord. The psalmist doesn't specify any particular tribes. But simply says the tribes of the Lord. How many tribes were there? Anybody remember? Ten and two is twelve, right? Good. Yeah, there were twelve. You know, each tribe, when you go back in, in, in history and you see in the book of Joshua, you see that... It was during Joshua's day where, where the boundaries were established and the lands, the tribe, tribal lands were established and settled, particular geographic settings across the land of Canaan. In fact, some of your Bibles, if you have that, go ahead and turn to the, to the map in the back of your Bible. You probably have one. Um, and it'll have a map of the 12 tribes somewhere in your Bible. So try and find that. And you can see where these 12 tribes were scattered during the time of David and Solomon. You see, it, it took up quite a distance, quite a large amount of, of land. So the tribes of the Lord made their way to Jerusalem. I want you to consider that for just a moment. You know, the church today has particular tribes. Um, we typically refer to them as denominations. Or maybe you might call them fences. Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, Episcopalian, Church of God, Church of Christ, just to name a few. It's become quite a long list. And for many denominations, there are flavors to choose from within. There are different kinds of Baptists, different kinds of Methodists, different kinds of... 
And so we have this, this list of denominations is really, it's a staggering thing to count. You know, and I wondered what it might look like today if the, church was call, if the church was called by God to take an annual journey to a holy city. With so many people today raising up so many different banners, would the unity still be present? Would all the churches come together under Christ or would there be a resistance to come because, well, that other denomination's present? The text says that Jerusalem was compact together. There was a sense of unity there. The place where the tribes of the Lord go up. You see, pilgrims who are on the journey understand that unity is important to the Lord. Jesus prayed in John 17 for the unity of his followers. Why? That the world might believe. Pilgrims on the journey, they don't concern themselves with periphery matters. But they steward their time exalting the Lord, glorifying His name, giving Him honor, finding ways to make His praise glorious. Pilgrims on the journey understand that they're here for a borrowed amount of time. And they use the time that they do have to shine the light of Christ. Sojourners who are traveling through, they are looking forward to that celestial city. They have no time for wars and fights with flesh and blood. One writer said, speaking about verse 4, let us as much as possible sink the tribal individuality in the national unity so that the church may be many waves but one sea, many branches but one tree, many members but one body. Observe that the tribes were all of them the Lord's, whether Judah or Benjamin, Manasseh or Ephraim, they were all the Lord's. Oh, that all the regiments of the Christian army may be all and equally the Lord's own, alike chosen, redeemed, accepted, and upheld by God. I believe we would do well to put in our pocket that passage in Revelation chapter 7, 9 and 10, which says, After these things, John, the revelator, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb a sense of unity but we see the phrase here to the testimony of Israel or some of your translations may say as a testimony to Israel You see, the testimony of the Lord in the scripture was oftentimes representative of the very presence of the Lord. So the people traveling to the holy city, desiring to be in the very presence of God in the holy city. And they would go up to Jerusalem and long to step foot in God's presence in that city, within the gates. But with that that same verse, if it is rendered as a testimony... We can also see that 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 holds true, that the pilgrims, they were making this journey to the holy city. They were doing so out of obedience to God's word. And so their presence within the gates of Jerusalem served as a testimony. It was a testimony of who they were in the Lord, that they were obeying what they've been called to do. A testimony of their loyalty, a testimony of their faith, a commitment to serve this one true God. And as the pilgrims made their journey, they did so with thanksgiving In their hearts. That's what the text says. Look at the text. The tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, 
to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Today, as you've gathered here for our time of worship, what do you have to be thankful for? Coming into the Lord's house is a time to give thanks. In fact, maybe it's good if you're taking notes, maybe even just to jot down right here in the moment as the word's being preached. What, what, is, what is something right now? What, what's something that I'm thankful for here? What am I thankful for this morning? Each time you enter into his gates on a Sunday, you should do so with the spirit of thanksgiving. The church of Jesus Christ ought always to be a grateful people, full of praise, full of thanksgiving. The psalmist in Psalm 92 verse 1 says, It is good. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. Amen? It's good to give thanks to the Lord. And that's why these people were making their trek and their journey to the holy city to give thanks. And that's why the church gathers on Sunday to give thanks to the Lord, to worship Him. As the pilgrims were making their way into the holy city, into the house of the Lord, they saw thrones set up for judgment. And coming to Jerusalem was a journey where judgment was meted out. The royal throne was in Jerusalem and authoritative judgment awaited those who made the journey. We see here an interesting intersection of government and religion in Jerusalem. And you know, I was, I was thinking about in the place where God's presence resided with the people, judgment was given. And what we know today as the uh, church and state, it seemed to clasp hands here in Jerusalem. Pilgrims on the journey could hear from the Lord in Jerusalem, but it was also the place where counsel and wisdom was given. And so the pilgrim traveling in David's day experienced the unity of the tribes going up together. Desires to be in the presence of the Lord. Desires to be a testimony to the Lord in obedience to His command. Desires to give thanks to the Lord. The pilgrim was reminded of the Lord's judgment when he came into the city gates. So this pilgrim anticipates the journey. He gives thanks to the Lord in this journey. But according to the text in verses 6 through 9... The pilgrim was also tasked with the responsibility and privilege to pray as well. As pilgrims pray along the journey. Notice the writer here, David, calls for prayer. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And, and, and it almost appears as though this is a... Um, a helpful tool or a pattern in what one might pray for Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. Prosperity within your palaces. You know, as I was thinking about Jerusalem and I was reminded, I don't know that there's another piece of real estate around the world that's been through so many wars, so many fights, so many contentions as Jerusalem. Control of Jerusalem has been fought for through the years. It's a small piece of land, and yet many have tried to wrestle it to the ground every day. In fact, we see today, one of the things today, surrounding Israel, war continues to rage on. Some people want to see Israel taken over and destroyed. Other people are standing by Israel. And so the call to pray here in the text for Jerusalem 
comes at a time contextually when Jerusalem seemed to be prosperous and yet the call to pray for the nation would be much needed in the days ahead, would it not? There was a day when Jerusalem was besieged by the Babylonians in 586. They destroyed the gates and the walls, took the people captive. We fast forward and we see that in Jesus' day, the Romans destroyed the city in, in around 70 A.D. When you unravel the timeline of events surrounding Jerusalem, you unveil vast amounts of history. And one of the questions perhaps that you come to and ask as you read this is, is this prayer, is this psalm suggesting that prayer should continue yet today for Jerusalem? Should the church of Jesus Christ pray for the nation of Israel? Should the church share any concern here over Jerusalem? And I believe the answer is yes. I do believe so. Before, for the, the nation of Israel is a part of God's plan and purpose in the scriptures. And yet I also believe the greater weight perhaps, should be placed upon verses 8 and 9. Within the church, David is praying for the brethren and for his companions, and he intentionally seeks their good because of the house of the Lord. You see, church, while we may be far removed from this pilgrimage idea in the days when the people made their journey to Jerusalem, I believe the Bible would make clear that, that God has a love for his people. We see back in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, he says, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. And so Jerusalem is not only the city of David, but it served as the name and the face of the Lord's presence to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Yes, still needed today for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of his purposes, yes, if you read your Bible, you see that Jerusalem plays a prominent role down the road in history, and not just for the benefit of the nation of Israel, as evidenced here in Psalm 122. In fact, I was reading in Isaiah chapter 2, in the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 2, it says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and... All the nations shall flow to it. All the nations. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his path. And there's a day according to Isaiah and Micah and some of the other prophets that speak of things yet to come. When all the nations will flow to Jerusalem. We see Zechariah the prophet Speaking of the day when the Lord shall return to the earth, he's going to arrive where? Do you know? What's it say? Right there at the Mount of Olives. Right there in Jerusalem country. That's where he's going to be coming. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. It's going to be incredible. <laughs> and in that day... It shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name one. And the people shall dwell in that land, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And even when you turn to the final chapters of Revelation, you see this reference to the new Jerusalem. 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Skipping down to verse 9, Revelation 21. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the last, the seven plagues, came to me, that's John, and talked and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God and having the glory of God. See, the scriptures seem to thread together God and his presence with Jerusalem. But the scriptures also thread, and on a greater level, I believe, thread together God and his eternal purposes with his church. Praying for the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem, for the goodwill of the city, favor upon those serving positions in the government. These are good things, church. And I believe the Lord would have us pray for the things and for the place in particular where his name is going to be exalted among the nations. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In my best Hebrew, Sha'alu Shalom Yerushalayim. That's the phrase. I was singing. There was a, a song I came across this week and I was trying to introduce it to the family. Sha'alu Shalom Yerushalayim. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The call for God's people to pray for Jerusalem is also a reminder, I believe, for us here in these United States of America to pray for our president, to pray for our nation, to pray for those who are gathered in the Capitol there in Washington, D.C. Praying for those in authority is deemed good by the Scriptures. Timothy chapter 2 calls us to that. I want you to notice here in verses 8 and 9 as David says... For the sake of my brethren and companions. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I now say, peace be within you. And because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. David had a heart for his people. It's interesting to me, and I don't know for sure in light of the context as to whether he was still king when he's writing this psalm. If he was, even if he wasn't, if this was later, I, I was drawn to the terms, at least, for the sake of my brethren and companions. You know, as a king, it would have been easy for him to just said, my subjects. <laughs> for the sake of my subjects, my, those that are under me. But these were his brothers. These were his companions. It's important, church, That we pray one for another for the sake of the brethren around us that we are praying for each one. That that ought to drive us to pray being connected one to another in the body of Christ. Desiring to pray one for another. Longing to pray. Longing to know what's going on in the other brother's life, in that sister's life. Notice that it's because of the house of the Lord that David seeks the good of his brothers and companions. Is there a connectedness between brothers and sisters in this body of Christ? You see, because while it is true that God had designated his holy city, Jerusalem, as a special place during the day, it is also true that the church, God has designated the church as a special place where he's going to work in a special way today. 
Do we understand this? Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to what? According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. You see, the church is God's instrument to reveal this manifold wisdom of God. God in his eternal purpose is working through his church today. And it is his desire to work through his church. And if he values church, we got to understand, if he values his church to such a degree, we need to ask ourselves where we stand in relationship to God, in relationship to others in the body. Are you interested in being fitted together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord? Ephesians chapter 2. Are you concerned about being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit? You see, pilgrims on their journey in Psalm 122, they prayed for the peace and prosperity of the nation. And David, because of the brethren surrounding him, and because of the house of the Lord, you know, I was reminded as I was reading this and, and his love for the brethren around him, there was another psalm that, that David also wrote. And this one he did write, I believe, while he was king. And it was Psalm 101. It's written from a kingly perspective. And he's talking about in that psalm, in Psalm 101, about the kind of people that he desires to have around. You see, David was a man, truly the Bible says, he was a man after God's own heart. He cared for not only the Lord, but he cared for the Lord's people. And so when we're looking at this and we're reading this, this text in Psalm 122, it's important for us to understand that David, because of the brethren surrounding him, because of the house of the Lord, he prayed for peace and sought to do good to his brothers. Church, because of the brethren surrounding you, because of the house of the Lord, the body of Christ we call hope in Christ, this is the local expression of the body of Christ. Will you pray diligently for those that you're connected with here in the body? You're being built up into a holy temple. In Christ, the body is connected to the head. And each part is intended to do its share. Ephesians chapter 4, right? Each part intended to do its share in this body. For the sake of the head, Christ. So the journey ahead, as we read and see in Psalm 122, this anticipation for their journey in our own lives, this journey that still lies ahead, may be loaded with trials. And you may be currently in one of those trials. You may, you may be currently in multiple trials. You may feel quite loaded down right now. But Jesus assures us, that his church will prevail. He says, I will build my church. And I believe there's great hope, there's great assurance, there's great security found in Christ Jesus. And as a pilgrim making the journey to the celestial city to see Jesus, I believe the text would have us anticipate our time together in the Lord's house. To see that this gathering together is a blessing not only to each other as we gather together, but it ought to be, most importantly, worship. Giving thanks to our Lord, who has done so much for us. Has he not? 
It's an opportunity each Sunday we gather together. The Lord gives us privilege and opportunity to come together and to praise His name. To sing songs of praise to Him. To declare His wonderful works among the children of men. But there's also in the gathering, in the journey, the need to remember to give thanks. To give thanks to the Lord and to diligently pray for all of those here in the body. And pray for the Lord's eternal purposes to be carried out in the life of His church family here at Hope in Christ. The bottom line is that the name of the Lord be praised, that there would be great unity in this body, there would be great anticipation, gladness in our hearts to come together as a body, desires to hear His word, desires to give Him thanks. We are grateful in verse 5 for His righteous judgment that He's given to us through His mediator, which is Christ Jesus. Yes, pray for our nation. Pray for our country. It's much needed. But church, we also ought to be praying one for another. For the sake of our brethren. For the sake of the house of the Lord and what that means, what that encompasses and the fact that this is a privilege to come together. Let's seek to do good to our brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good word. Father, there are many here who are on a journey with you. There are some right now, even as I speak, that are bogged down with the weights and cares of this life. Some might feel as though they're in that slough of despond, Bunyan writes about in his allegory. Not going anywhere. Feeling of being in quicksand, just sinking slowly. Father, I pray that through your word this morning, you would breathe life, breathe hope into each one here who may be in that position, burdened with trials. Oh, Father, I pray that you would encourage them with this eager anticipation that we see in the text. The eager anticipation of a pilgrim, a sojourner, traveling to the holy city. And while we're here, we are on our way. Our reward is yet to come. It's something we await. We eagerly await our Savior. As a citizen of the United States, we are also citizens of heaven, eagerly waiting a Savior. And Father, I pray that we would hold on to hope, regardless of our circumstances, realizing that this journey... There is an end to this journey here on earth. Father, I pray that we would all understand that while there's an end to the journey here on earth, there is something that is needed, absolutely needed, before we complete the journey here on earth. And that is a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that as we travel on this journey together as a body in the days ahead, 
Father, we would do so with this full assurance of faith, with hope in knowing that we have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And Father, if there are some that do not have that assurance, Lord, I pray that you would continue to make it known in their lives. I pray, Lord, you would challenge and convict. That's the role of your Spirit, to do that work. And I pray your Spirit would do such a work in their lives that they would bow their knee to you, that they would surrender themselves to you, that they would submit themselves under your mighty hand, that they would repent of their sin, that they would turn to you and they would do works then befitting repentance in their life. And Lord, I pray that as a church that we would practice those very things together as we continue on in the journey. I pray you would teach us many things in this journey that we have together. Hope in Christ. Continue to point us toward the one thing that is important, the one person who is significant, the one, as the the Hebrew writer says, that we would always keep our eyes and look unto Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of the faith. May we all, as a body, run this race set before us, looking unto Jesus, I pray. Grant us grace to run well for you and your name's sake. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.